welcome to said contra podcast of the soccer doctrine project i'm your host tonight dr kevin clark and uh, tonight with me i have uh, john bungart assistant professor of philosophy at uh, uh, newman university in wichita kansas hello john hi kevin uh, welcome to the podcast, and uh, it's a, a pleasure to have you here. Same here. Uh, this is, I believe, my first time ever doing a podcast, let alone for the Soccer Doctrina Project, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And this is my first time hosting, so I'm used to relying on someone like uh, Daniel Linman or, or Father Schrader to carry the conversation, so uh, so hopefully our listeners will will bear with our unique newnesses here. But uh, tonight we're going to be um, discussing the nature of Catholic education in, and, and the relationship between the Catholic University and the church. And uh, so a little bit of background to, to this discussion is uh, in 1967, there, there was a, a, a famous meeting in Wisconsin that uh, led to the what was called the Lando Lake Statement, subtitled "The Idea of the Catholic University," which, of, of course, we we know you 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 teach at Newman, uh, and it was one of uh, John Henry Newman's famous works was uh, his work on the Catholic University, and this was a a, a document that was very uh, different in tenor from Newman's own work. And so they they bring into um, into play, and this was a gathering of university presidents and, and other um, officials uh, affiliated with uh, uh, Catholic universities. There were, I think, a couple dozen signatories. It was led by uh, Father Theodore Hesburgh, who was uh, president of uh, University of Notre Dame at the time, and um, quite a few um, well-known names on on the document. Uh, but some of the things that, um, that that come out of this document, you can see how how epochal it was. It, it very much created a uh, shift in the nature of the Catholic University and its uh, its relation, especially to the bishop. They they say right from the beginning that the Catholic University, uh, direct quote, Catholic University must have a true autonomy and academic freedom in the face of authority of, authority of whatever kind, uh, lay or clerical, external to the academic community itself. And the way they, uh, the way they characterize it is, it is almost as though they believe that the, the Catholic University uh, was needed this in order to, um, in order to survive, right? So in, 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 in saying this, uh, they create the distance between the diocese and the university. So it also sought to reverse the, uh, what we might call the traditional ecclesial oversight of the university, making the uh, university the overseer of the ecclesia, when it maintained that, quote, the university should carry on a continual examination of all aspects and all activities of the church and should objectively evaluate them, end quote. And, you know, there's no mention of uh, Christ, the scriptures, faith, or doctrine. And the preparers of the Lander Lake Statement, they, they seek to, they sought to reposition the place of theology and philosophy in the Catholic University, more as equals at the academy rather than in their established roles as queen and handmaiden. But uh, I think what we've seen in the last 55 years is um, something of um, almost, um, you know, to to uh, use somewhat revolutionary language, kind of an academic regicide, where th theology has been somewhat dethroned as the queen of the sciences, and along with her handmaiden, from their rightful uh, places among the sciences, and uh, and so theology nowadays is relegated to uh, just one of the so-called humanities, along with philosophy. You know, they're kind of subjects of academic fascination, 
only in as much as they provide something useful to humanism or uh, answer a, a contemporary social problem. Uh, and and Lando Lakes uses this this kind of uh, language. It's, it declares that uh, modern the modern Catholic university will have quote no theological or philosophical imperialism end quote uh, and and so um, you know they're, they're very much I mean the, the 60s were a wild time right you know but they they, uh, they very much sought to put theology and philosophy uh, in their place as uh, as equals and I I think what was happened in the wake of this is that you you've had um, the spreading of this kind of philosophy of, of the Catholic University really throughout all of uh, the, the major Catholic universities, especially in America. And so at, after this document was published in 1967, then you start to see a, um, a kind of a, a counter-reformation, a, a, um, a, a revival of, uh, you know, a, a real... Um, the discernment among uh, Catholics about what it means to actually be uh, to, to be a Catholic university. And, and so you have the founding of, of the Thomas Aquinas College in 1971, Magdalene College of Liberal Arts, 1973, Christendom in 77, mm -hmm. uh, Franciscan University, which had been Catholic for a while, but uh, but then they were they had some reforms to begin in the 70s mm -hmm. and then it was renamed. And then you have Ex Corde Ecclesiae in 1990. We'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, following Ex Corde, then you have a founding of Ave Maria, John Paul the Great, Wyoming Catholic. And so um, uh, so I, I think that perhaps there are some uh, consequences that were unintended by the drafters of the Land of Lakes document in terms of the pushback, so to speak. And you know, so, so that's something of the, the historical setting that we find ourselves in now, and we can talk about, you know, what's, uh, what's good and what's bad from, uh, uh, from that, but, uh, but I, th I think also uh, uh, in this podcast, we especially want to talk about what, what is the nature of freedom, academic freedom, uh, intellectual freedom, and, uh, and, and why those are still, still values that, that are important for uh, anyone in a Catholic university, whether you uh, are in a, a more mainstream uh, Catholic university or, uh, or, or, or one that, uh, that more embraces the principles of, of ex corde and the, the recent papal magisterium of the university's relationship to the church. So anyway, what are, what are your, uh, uh, your thoughts, John, in, in terms of, you know, if you want to add anything to my historical presentation. So as far as the, some of the historical background, the Land O'Lakes statement itself was uh, something of a, a, an asked for response to the Vatican II declaration, right? Um, Gravissimum educationis. Uh, and so it was designed, from what I understand, it was designed as part of a uh, response by various university, Catholic university organizations, and it led to a more formal document that uh, somewhat mollified some of the more ex uh, extreme statements, including the one, Kevin, that you quoted, but it's how does the the saying go honored more in the breach than in the observance it's that that line was the one that stuck and that's the one when you read commentaries later on this document that's that line is almost always quoted i mean the one where they claim in the first paragraph to perform its teaching and research functions effectively the catholic university must have a true autonomy and academic freedom in the face of authority of whatever kind. So it's for it's it's a striking statement, and it's 
I don't know if we want to go directly to ex corde, um, but as part of the, uh, well, how should we understand that statement maybe first? What's the interaction between yeah, authority and freedom? And, and maybe we could uh, talk a little, yeah, right, uh, talk a little bit about uh, the nature of authority in in terms of the free inquiry and the pursuit of truth. Uh, because for uh, you know, throughout all of Christian history, uh, theological inquiry has been based upon authority. Uh, the nature of revelation itself, and, and Lando Lakes does take up the question of, of revelation, uh, which it, it does so in, in a uh, somewhat strange way, but uh, they say um, in, in paragraph three, uh, the theological faculty must engage directly in exploring the depths of Christian tradition and the total religious heritage of the world in order to come to the best possible intellectual understanding of uh, religion and revelation. Uh, and, and so, in terms of well that that next clause that you left off is interesting though right uh of man and all his very relationships to god yeah. uh, so it, in terms of what we believe about uh revelation I mean this goes back to the first question in the summa and um and Thomas, who points out that uh, that you know there there is truth uh, beyond philosophy that is uh, that that is necessary uh, that uh, God has revealed revealed Himself to humankind. I mean, we could know things about God. Uh, it's true in terms of uh, natural theology, but these things would only be would only be understood by a few and after a long time and with much difficulty, right? So uh, in, in this sense, revelation and authority or the authority of the scriptures plays a key role in our coming to the truth of things. And then also you have, uh, in, in terms of the, the, the fathers, I mean, throughout all the patristic era, uh, there were figures of authority, fathers who were before the, other, the later fathers who were uh, uh, authorities that uh, uh, um, who were guided by the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and so, uh, so anyway, yeah, how does authority play into the, the quest of the Catholic University and the pursuit of truth? Well, here, I might want to propose a distinction and see what you think about it um is and this is a distinction i'm um stealing from yves simone in his uh little book a uh, general theory of authority uh so it, so the distinction is between substitutional authority and essential authority and for a substitutional authority the best example is, well, that's what parents have over uh, children who are, especially children who are minors. Uh, so there's the sense that parents have to substitute to a large degree, and it's larger when the children are younger. They substitute their intellect and their will for the child because the child is immature and they they can't see frequently what is best for them. Uh, so that's the sense of an authority where uh, its warrant arises because of a defect on the part of those under authority. Whereas on the other hand, you could still have authority even if there is no defect on the part of those under authority which might seem odd. It's like, wait a second, if they don't lack something, if they're able as agents to 
do what they ought to do? What is the use of authority? Why do, why do they need it? Um, but one of the, what well, you could think of a couple examples here. You could think of the role of a coach on a professional sports team, or you could think of the, uh, the conductor of a, uh, not a youth, not a youth symphony there. They are more of a teacher, but of a professional symphony. It's like, there you have a whole bunch of professionals. You don't have to train them in the same sense as you would a young musician, but the conductor is still there to, uh, provide a, an organizing function. It's there's, so there's a coordination among various agents directed towards a single good that they can't do on their own. And so there's, there still has to be an, an agent that's responsible authoritatively for certain decisions. Um, and so I wonder, I mean, if that distinction makes sense, uh, when I was thinking about this topic, I wonder if there's a degree to which, well, on the one hand, the university uh, in the light of natural reason, what we're able to, well, at least struggle to achieve on our own steam, um, that should eventually be under essential authority, to my mind, right? So the uh, an institution that has a tradition of uh, teaching in and carrying on uh, the the traditions of the various intellectual disciplines. Um, well, that it would be, those would be imperfect. I mean, the natural ones, right? The ones that are noble by natural reason. Mm -hmm. There would be a certain imperfection if that were always under substitutional authority. That you were, that the you were always essentially believing someone, and believing on the authority of someone else. Whereas I don't. That doesn't seem to be the case, right, with uh, a Catholic university, especially with respect to sacred theology. Uh, and for the, I think the reason is what you pointed out is that it's uh, sacred theology is subalternated to revelation, right? The way Aquinas describes it as a uh, subalternated science. And so the the truth of its principles are all, always have to be accepted on a kind of childlike faith, right? So there, it seems like there's always going to be a, at least in that respect, a need for substitutional authority, even in a university setting. But maybe I'm going too far. I don't know. I don't know. It's certainly helpful. And I think that... Uh... I think that a lot of times folks don't really think through just how much we take on authority. I think that there's a, a kind of a kind of a naivete about uh, about our human ability to acquire certainty about everything that we know. For instance, I used to. Um, I, I used to teach high school in Southern California, and I would take the uh, Pacific Surfliner to to uh, work every day, and it was it was a very pleasant train ride. I got to watch the uh, surfers uh, riding the waves by the beach. But there was a bridge I went went over every day uh, outside of Oceanside, and and I used to think about, well, how do I know that this bridge isn't going to collapse? Uh, how does anyone on the train know that the bridge isn't going to collapse. I don't think any of us had seen the inspection documents or anything like that. We just took it on the uh, authority of whoever managed the rail lines that we were good to go. And sure enough, we were fine every day, but, uh, but um, you know, I think it, there's something, there's, there's something like this in the university setting where students will take their science classes and because they're, they're science, they just assume that uh, by the authority of their teachers and the, the textbooks that, you know, science is in a higher order of provable things. But 
you, you know, there are fluctuations in, in terms of the development of the scientific knowledge all the time. But the thing about uh, that's different about theology is that it is directly revealed by God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. Uh, and philosophy is in a unique position as well in terms of these um, uh, certain metaphysical truths uh, that, uh, that, that can be known by, by everyone. But you used the key word, word every, uh, earlier, uh, tradition, this idea of uh, handing down what, uh, what we have received. And, and so, um, I don't know, perhaps we can uh, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what is, um, how, do we, how do we know uh, things theologically? How, what's the connection between uh, revelation and, uh, and, and our response of, of faith? Here, you're, you're making me think of Newman's grammar of assent. Um, yeah. Well, and you brought up, how do I know the bridge will not collapse? And one of Newman's examples is, how do I know that Great Britain is an island? It's <laughs> a great uh, example. How do um, any of us know? It's on all the maps. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, and there, yeah, there, there's one example I think he uses on purpose um, early in the book, uh, where the child is asking his mother, um, what is lucerne, this type of grass, and she could either explain it, well, it's, you know, food for cattle, um, or she could give its uh, uh, scientific name, but Newman's trying to illustrate, well, either way, uh, at a certain point, the, the child just believes his mother, or if it's a, a more complicated, say it's a, some sort of phrase from Shakespeare, the, the child believes it, oh, this is a good thing because my mother told me. So there's certainly more uh, higher order sources of tradition, but the uh, some of, even some of my best teachers would, well, where did I receive the faith? I mean, it's through the sacraments, of course, but they're, they come in the context of uh, the, the first and most essential natural society, the family. And so the, so the, the answer to your question is at least that. Uh, there's more, but there's, it, it's at least that, that the tradition of the faith uh, comes through the family. And it's, I mean, I think we do want to add formal catechesis and education through uh, formal schooling or the university, sure, but you can't, you can't argue someone into the faith and just psychologically the how a child is nurtured in that seems a to me a very it's, it's a very powerful source for that reason good uh, and i mean what what then is the 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 role of the the catholic university because the in in terms of building up the faith right uh, if you look at the 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 founding of so many of these catholic universities they were for the explicit and stated purpose of the increase of of uh, the education of the of the faith it was part of their the, their founding missions and um it, and now especially in the last uh, uh 50 75 years or so there's been this shift away from that and um um and so the uh, the ecclesial nature of the Catholic University, which is to uh, to to be really at the service of the church 
uh, and to work in conjunction with the, the office of the bishop, right? Uh, you know, and, and that's one of the points that, that uh, John Paul II pushes uh, back so, uh, so strongly for in, um, in, in Ex Corde Ecclesiae, right? Uh, he says in, in Ex Corde uh, that, that the, the Catholic University is in this um, unique or privileged position to unite uh, what he says, both the um, uh, the search for the truth and the certainty of already knowing the fount of truth. Uh, and the Catholic University must, he says, quote, uh, consecrate itself without reserve to the cause of truth, right? So, you know, you, you look at this and, and, um, and, and, I mean, Pope Benedict, for example, and he, he uh, uh, spoke about the dicta dictatorship of, of relativism. Uh, and you, you see a lot of that in uh, the contemporary Catholic University where uh, mm -hmm. the, the question of truth is not really the, prom the predominating question. Uh, everything is, is uh, we, we, we talk more about facts and uh, statistics and, and what can be observed. Or, or it's um, a kind of never-ending inquiry mm -hmm. that, yeah, that quote from Ex Corde that the, the, and it seems, doesn't Pope John Paul II call it paradoxical? Or it might seem paradoxical that the Catholic University can both be searching for truth and have the certainty that it already has the truth yeah uh it seems like there's a way to define a tradition right there but so well short backstory in this latest semester uh teaching history of medieval philosophy i use for the first time saint augustine's um contra academicos uh against the against the academics <laughs> um and the the debate there it revolves entirely around well does success well i'm paraphrasing the success in philosophy the telos of philosophy is it searching for the truth or is it finding the truth and augustine's on the one side that it's in finding the truth right like that's the success of philosophy whereas uh he some of his friends are defending uh, the more popular late Roman academic quasi-skeptical view that no philosophy's excellence consists and you're just, you're searching and you, you might never find anything, but you're searching. It's great. It's all about uh, the journey, right? The, uh... And the, you know, well, in that, that line from Ex Corte just undercuts that. And it seems like how you could define a tradition by that is there's, there's still an aspect that's ongoing, uh, right? It's not mere uh, record keeping or tracking a bibliography of sources. Or so. it's, it's still ongoing, um, but at the same time, it's always possessed. I mean, there's a real sense that it's, a, it's, a, it's an Aristotelian actuality, right? It, 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 it's an activity that uh, doesn't progress in the way that a some sort of transformation or a change does it's it's an activity more like contemplation you're there's still a possession even though it's ongoing this is more of a tangent though is i well no because we're still i mean how does the university relate to the church right and this carrying on a, the trad theological tradition of sacred theology so there's a, a great little essay on, it's in a collection by, edited by um, Matthew Levering and, and Father Lamb. This is the reception of Vatican II. And the, the chapter on Gravissima Magicationis by uh, Paige, Paige Hochschild mm -hmm. is great. Um, but at one point, now I have to find it again. 
she brings up the Land O'Lakes statement and Father Hesburgh's influence. And I, there's a line attributed to Father Hesburgh. Uh, so this is the, the quote, when Father Hesburgh offered the image of the university as the place where the church does its thinking, he clearly understood the university to, to be setting the terms of unity from a place of internally guaranteed authority. Mm. And so it struck me that that's, well, and that's what we're talking about here is that to, to a certain degree, sure, uh, along the lines of the principle of subsidiarity, say, the Catholic university as an institution, I mean, it has to have competence over its own, say, day-to-day -day activities. Uh, it's, uh, so the, the question I think is not, well, the, there should be, uh, some autonomy, there should be autonomy. It's well, what exactly are the principles that, uh, give that autonomy a, a proper scope without it running roughshod over things it ought not, um, uh yeah and you, you know you you mentioned um you, you mentioned father lamb just now he one of the editors of that volume and i had the privilege of uh studying under him at, at ave maria university and one of the points that, that he used to uh, make quite often is is that um you you had this uh uh that, that uh, contemporary theological education has led to the fragmentation of, of theology. And, and really, this is a university-wide problem in, in all the sciences. There, there's this fragmentation and over-specialization. And, and even from the, the Lando Lakes statement that, that you're, uh, you, you were mentioning, uh, uh, Paige Hochschild earlier, you know, that, that you have almost this... Um, bifurcation of the um, of theological inquiry and then what the uh, the the, um, the the diocese does as though those were uh, two separate things so you have the, then the, the separation of the the spe speculative inquiry into theology and the church's evangelization and catechetics on the you know on, on in, in another direction and you know, I don't know how these two are supposed to re-intersect, but, uh, but, you know, it, this over-specialization ha has uh, very much harmed the ability to see the whole, uh, to see the whole uh, unity of theology as such. I mean, theology is about divine things, primarily and above all, it's about the uh, who God is and the uh, sending of his son, uh, the, the eternal Logos, Christ uh, in the flesh for our salvation and sanctification and then the Holy Spirit, sending the Holy Spirit upon the church. Um, you know, these are, these are eternal truths, but uh, so much of the, the uh, focus of, of uh, theolo theological inquiry has uh, been displaced into these uh, subfields and in, in these uh, these conversations about minutia, that we've we've lost the the sense of the whole, uh, and I think that's one of the unfortunate uh, consequences of perhaps a a lack of self perception on the part of Catholic universities today. Yeah, there's a, a here at Newman University. One of the courses I teach. It's a it's essentially a philosophy of science course. I co-teach it with one of our chemists. Uh, and one of the books we read in the course is uh, by the poet, philosopher, farmer, Wendell Berry, mm. uh, his little book, Life is a Miracle. Uh, and the book is essentially his rebuttal to the biologist E.O. Wilson's idea of consilience 
that the natural sciences are now in charge of architectonically unifying and organizing knowledge. Um, and he, his book is far shorter than Wilson's and it does a far more effective job of achieving its aim. Um, the, he, at one point, well, at various points in the book, he speaks about, yeah, the problem of the fragmentation of knowledge within the university, which really means the, the loss of what it means to be a university. Uh, Reinhard Huter, in his book on Newman and Aquinas, uh, talks about the, what was it, the Baconian Polytechnicum. Yes, yeah. I think he uses McIntyre's uh, multiversity. Uh, so even, yeah, even within departments, you'll have uh, a, a sort of lack of unity. Um, but another more helpful idea from Wendell Berry's little book is it, it goes under the name of propriety. Uh, the, the sense of uh, what belongs or what is fitting to a, the nature of a, especially a place, but it could also be the nature of a, what's fitting for a certain city or way of life or a university or a discipline even. And so I wonder if that's also, uh, there's, there's no sense of propriety that you, you want to uh, dig your roots in deep into your tradition to hand it on, but, and instead there's more of a, yeah, minutiae, yes, but also let's do the, the, the coolest next thing, whatever the, the current thing is of the moment, which is antithetical to just a much longer, more, takes a lot more work sort of discipline in, in mastering the tradition to, to hand it on. Um, yeah, so, um, so, so let's, let's look, let's zero in uh, a little bit on academic freedom specifically. Uh, what would you say is the true nature of academic freedom? And then how does this uh, relate to the nature and uh, telos of a university? So I'm going to start with another distinction. Okay. Uh, and many listeners, I'm sure, will recognize Cervais Pinker's in this, but other philosophers or theologians have used this distinction. It's the distinction between uh, freedom for perfection and then freedom from, or a, a, a sort of negative freedom. Um, and it, it seems like, seems to me frequently academic freedom or intellectual freedom or the freedom of inquiry is conceived of entirely in that that second category right a sort of negative freedom yeah he he refers to it as the freedom of indifference right yeah that's right yeah so it's the same kind of idea this freedom uh from any kind of external control right yeah and it's it's not uh, that sort of that that ability isn't measured by some prior standard or nature that you yourself didn't choose, right? So it's yeah, there the the that sort of intellectual freedom uh, in its worst form, I would say, is uh, the mentality of free inquiry i'm quoting here this is from uh the founding document of thomas aquinas college their section on intellectual freedom Mm -hmm. the mentality of free inquiry quote the mentality which sees itself 
that's not enslaved to any fixed conception, but free to subject every doctrine to critical examination and possible rejection, close quote. Right, and that's that's the key is that uh, possible rejection, right? It, yes, um, except of course the doctrine of free inquiry. Yeah. <laughs> which is not subject to itself. Um, and, and that mindset, I mean, you, you see that in, um, in, in Kant, uh, for example, in mm -hmm. his, uh, uh, his work, Religion Beyond the uh, Limits of Reason Alone. Uh, and um, that must be a sequel, isn't it? Within the boundary of mere reason? Oh, oh right, 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 right. Yeah, sorry. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, no, he, and he, he talks about the superiority of the pure uh, moral religion, right? Uh, and then the inferiority of any kind of religion yoked to uh, a direct revelation from God or uh, any kind of dogmatic uh, creedal statement that uh, he didn't come up with himself, you know? And, and so, um, but you see there uh, in, in Kant's, you know, enlightenment instinct is that he wants to be able to judge doctrine and to uh, reject it as well. And that, that also really comes across in Kant's essay, What is Enlightenment? That there right. can't be any, uh, there can't be any dogmas that was contrary to the spirit of enlightenment. And um, if I remember the, my translation correctly, not the one I did, I, the one I use in class, it's he even calls it a crime against human nature, dogma. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, so I, you know, I, on the one hand, though, uh, academic free, the the emphasis on academic freedom, I mean, there, there's something good there, though, right? I mean, we want to be able to have freedom, as uh, Pink Harris puts it, freedom for. Uh, perfection, and and so, so how do we how do we tell the difference in the academic setting between between the two types of of, of freedom? Mm. Well, that so maybe just to finish the that thought I yeah go ahead started that yeah so intellectual freedom for perfection. Um, it would be the rational ability to choose to contemplate the truth. And so if you can do that completely, you have complete intellectual freedom. Uh, so you, you could think of the struggling algebra student. They're not, they, they do not have intellectual freedom. Um, whereas the, the math professor who does not struggle with this particular point of mathematics, their intellect is freer in that way. Here, I'm glad Daniel Lenden is not here because he'd object to my using algebra as an example. I would change, I'll change it to geometry, Daniel. Um, but at the, yeah, so at the same time though, if that's intellectual freedom and then there's incomplete versions of it, at the same time, you still need uh, a setting, a place in order to pursue that, right? You can't, you have to have enough time. Um, you have to have uh, a, a university set up or at least a collegiate set up. Uh, uh, you don't want other aspects of life interfering on duly with that so there there does have to be a kind of negative or a, a freedom from those sorts of things as a condition and so you might i was wondering if one couldn't then define academic freedom what it's a bit more of a juridical property it's a bit more of a a property of a an institution uh, what characterizes its authority or purview uh, is that it's setting 
the the terms or the boundaries for people within it within its within that community to practice and exercise intellectual freedom and so then it i wonder if that i wonder if that helps when we think well depending upon how you conceive of intellectual freedom right i mean going back to what we had said earlier is it just the ability to continue to search for the truth uh uh is it or is it the are we defining it with a higher degree of success or a, a, a more stringent condition that no you you the claim is we've found the truth and we don't want to lose that right uh, well isn't this why the oath of fidelity and the mandatum are so essential to hmm. the uh theology professor taking his place in the classroom or his or her place in the classroom that that uh that this person uh who presents uh, himself or herself to instruct the young has um has that kind of spirit that uh, fides querens and electum that uh, faith seeking understanding that uh, uh not everything has been dogmatically defined and there are things that are that are still open for the kind of debate and uh, theological inquiry that you have in the classroom. Uh, and, and so, um, but see, and, and that's where the, the break with the ecclesial office and the university becomes so unfortunate because then you, and I think this is why the uh, so-called Newmanlist schools have have become so popular that that young people recognize that they if if they're going to be receiving a tradition that uh, has on the one hand been revealed by God but then also is eminently reasonable and uh, can can be known especially in the life of grace then that affects their their choice of college for example. So, um, I don't know. What are your your, your thoughts about the the uh, the oath of fidelity and uh, relation between the professor and the the bishop? So, as a since I'm a philosopher, at least at my school, it's, it was not required that I seek a mandatum. Um, and then I have heard at other places there that is possible. For someone teaching philosophy to receive a mandatum or take an oath of fidelity, I, I kind of operate in the spirit of I would anyways mm-hmm. <laughs> and teach with that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a here's here's what strikes me in, more immediately about that is that it's it even my disposition or willingness to do such a thing would probably be incomprehensible to many of my colleagues broad more broadly speaking fellow mm-hmm. philosophers yeah um because it would seem right to to limit my freedom of inquiry that there are certain things that can't be that can't be questioned in the sense in the more of the the Cartesian doubt sense that it has to be leveled and then maybe rebuilt later mm-hmm. with some stronger theological algebra. Yeah, but I I wonder if if that sort of if that's even a betrayal of the of the Socratic spirit. Uh, and it's more of a, a Cartesian understanding of of the original uh, Socratic spirit that inspired a lot of, well, most of Western philosophy. Um, uh, there's a a speech that Pope Benedict the Sixteenth never gave uh, at uh, La Sapienza University in Rome. 
he never gave it because the faculty and students protested. And so his speech was canceled, which was caused quite a stir mm. back in the day. It was canceled, evidently. I was looking into this because at one point in his long career, <laughs> Benedict, uh, uh, when still Cardinal Ratzinger, he quoted approvingly the philosopher of science, Paul Feyerabend, uh, from his book Against Method, where Feyerabend is kind of poking, well, not kind of, he's poking definitive holes in, uh, and one's not so definitive, in the, the, the sort of tall tale uh, hero-worshipping myths about Galileo. And so Ratzinger quotes a portion of that book. And, but in this, in this speech for, that they did not want him to give, uh, Pope Benedict brings up Socrates as an example of what the university ought to be doing. And it, he brings up the example of Socrates from the Euthyphro, uh, where Socrates is pointing out, it's like, well, how could there be war among the gods? Uh, that would mean that they're at some, the, that would mean at some fundamental level, the divine is irrational, which of course is a great theme from Pope Benedict, um, that the divine can't be irrational. But it, so I think if we read into that example a bit, um, uh, sometimes Socrates and then universities methods that are inspired by his method, uh, they incorrectly interpret that as, well, there's, there's always more questions. And so the, you'll, you'll just never arrive at anything definitive. And so the tradition that you hand on is just a, a sort of, well, fancy way of always asking more questions. Um, but in that, in that same speech, Pope Benedict points out, I don't, I don't think it would have been underhanded of him, but he's right. This is a university that used to be the Pope's university, and now it's under, underneath the Italian government. Right, so there's, there's no longer that ecclesial link. Um, but he, he points out that the, the only authority that the university should recognize is the truth. And like I said, I don't think he's being, yeah, so the, the actual quote is, uh, today, however, it, La Sapiencia, is a secular university with that autonomy which, in keeping with the vision inspiring their foundation, has always been part of the nature of universities, which must be tied exclusively to the authority of the truth. And so I think he's being, he goes on to say, it is in their freedom from political and ecclesiastical authorities that the particular function of universities lies, a function that serves modern society as well, which needs institutions of this kind. And so as I was reading, I wondered if he was being a bit diplomatic as well because if you're tied exclusively to the authority of the truth well then that just raises a whole bunch of questions which he does in this speech it's like well where does your knowledge of the truth arise i mean if it if it's revealed truth then we're just back to the the questions we've been discussing is that that means your authority uh, can't be absolute. Your autonomy can't be absolute. Uh, and so, in this in this speech, I, though, at least from my understanding of it, the uh, Pope Benedict is is trying to pastorally indicate that the university should uh, seek to be closer to the church, especially. I mean, obviously, a Catholic university. Yeah, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. And I, I, I love the uh, image he gives in that, in that address of the, um, the, the cutting off of the roots from the waters that nourish the tree that is the university. That when, when, they, when the university loses access to the uh, fount of the 
the traditions of truth that it essentially uh, eventually withers and uh, loses its its uh, sustaining ability. Um, so that's a it's really helpful. Thank you. Um, so I I wonder. Um, uh, is, I guess we're uh, coming uh, to the end of our time, although we could, there's so much more that we could talk about here. But you know, I, I wonder, it, we, we've talked a lot about academic freedom and um, the different kinds of freedoms, but uh, in the spirit of uh, Sacra, the Sacra Doctrina project, what, uh, what does Sacra Doctrina or Sacred Doctrine uh, contribute to the above discussion about, about freedom. So maybe the philosopher should take the first stab at this. <laughs> um, and so I'm gonna, I'm going to answer it by appealing to the opposite extreme and then bringing it back to uh, something that's hopefully closer to the truth. So the extreme is Thomas Hobbes. Uh, and in the, the Leviathan, one of the things Hobbes does is the university has to be under the, the control of the Leviathan. And there's even hints that in the universities overseen by the Leviathan, of course, the Hobbesian doctrine of the Leviathan will be taught. So there's a there's a an impulse or a desire on the part of uh, secular political power that recognizes that because the university finds its authority in the truth and its tradition is to to sustain and carry on. A, a deep pedagogy of truth across the disciplines, but especially theology. There's a recognition even by Thomas Hobbes that that is not, the university is somehow beyond the political order as long as it's theological, as long as there's theology in it. It's not entirely beyond the political order, but it's there's a a key element of it that's beyond the political order. So the what to bring back uh, the patron of my university back bring back Newman into the conversation he points that out in the idea of a university is that there's it's it's not an accidental place that theology holds among the disciplines hmm. right it's a a, a a unifying place and if there's if there's not something there that's theology then there's going to be something else so then someone like the university of chicago uh professor uh hutchins is it uh, now I'm forgetting his first name, but in the higher learning in America, he talks about this and says, well, look, there's no unanimity anymore among theology faculty. And with sectarianism and religious pluralism, you couldn't hope for theology being the unifying force of a university anymore. Um, so he proposes metaphysics, which has its own problems. Uh, but it, it would be the 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 next best option so this is what it seems to me soccer doctrina uh, uh sacred theology brings to university is that it's it's the locus carrying on that tradition that's it's the place for indicating the proper uh scope and directedness of your intellectual freedom and see so you can what i've been saying is you can see that negatively even in someone like hobbes who recognizes 
uh, a university that is essentially unified around uh, sacred truth and revelation, because it negatively, uh, the Leviathan recognizes that as a threat, but more positively, the role for soccer doctrina is let's well, it provides the right propriety and order uh, and conditions for freedom uh, for the university and all the other disciplines. So that's and that's the the image you mentioned from Pope Benedict, right? That it's the 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 stream that feeds the roots for everything else. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. And you know, it, it, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, fears and uh, among those outside of the theological community that um, any kind of ecclesial theology uh, that is a, a theology that um, that is united uh, with the bishop and and his uh, his teaching office that there's a there's a fear that once you do that then you'll, you'll have uh, thought the theology taking um, this kind of uh, this place as a, a censor of all the other uh, disciplines and this simply isn't isn't true uh, what's I mean truth is is truth uh, and theology recognizes this theology does not um, does not seek to intervene really in the uh, in in the lower sciences theology itself does, is concerned with uh, with divine things with uh, with God himself with contemplation with you know understanding uh, who man is and and uh, humanity's final destiny in, ter in terms of uh, beatitude and and so on so uh, I think uh, I, I think some of the uh, anxieties about uh, about sacra doctrina are misplaced at uh, at, at best, but uh, but th th this idea that you you mentioned about the um, you know the the unifying principle that uh, that that theology uh, has this place of unifying uh, all and uh, and really giving an account of of all of all truth uh, and the whole cosmos. Um, there's there's something um, profoundly beautiful about sacred doctrines uh, role not only in in bringing us revelation but also uh, bringing us uh, to Christ in the heart of the church and it it, it really is sad that um, um, that this uh, uh, in, encounter in in so many um, Catholic universities, it really should be uh, facilitated more in the classroom itself. And I, I would just um, issue a, a bit of a challenge and a call uh, to, to, real, to my fellow theology professors to really discover the, um, the sense in which the, the, the office of professor Truly is ordered to the uh, the work of the the uh, the teaching office of the bishop. As Ignatius of, of Antioch said, do, "Do nothing apart from the bishop." Right, and um, and, and so it's it, it's almost strange that that um, in in uh, Catholic universities that uh, um, they, they would have this uh, this this division, but. Um, but anyway, I, it, this is a good discussion. I think it, the emphasis on on um, academic freedom that uh, that came out of Land of Lakes is certainly a good thing. It's just that we have to come to a right understanding of of what that really means. What is freedom? What does it mean to truly have uh, theological academic inquiry? And 
and John, you've you've given us uh, quite a lot to uh, to think about in your your reflections tonight. So uh, I just want to thank you for uh, taking the time to um, uh, to be with us on the show tonight, and thank our our listeners also for uh, for joining us. Do you have any uh, closing uh, thoughts? No, I probably should hold back. Otherwise, I'll just keep rambling on. So, no, thank you, Kevin, for leading us through this. Um, it, I think we, and I think we should put up some of the the links and the documents that we were talking about because um, it's it's still an area that I want to learn a lot more about, in particular because of the the necessity of the the mission of Catholic universities and colleges. We'll be sure to share those notes with our listeners. Thank you, John. I've enjoyed our discussion. We appreciate your joining us on Say Contra and hope you do so again. Thanks for listening. Do check us out on sacradoctrinaproject.org.